Welcome back to Waiting for Christ, Meditations for Advent and Christmas, as we're making our way through Dr. Christopher Bloom's compilation of St. John Henry Newman's homilies and sermons for the season of Advent and Christmas. We are in the octave of Christmas, which uh, happened quickly, you know. Here we be. Yeah, so happened quickly. Uh, Once again, joined by Carlos Tejeda. Father Dominic Rankin, mm-hmm. Sister Veritas Wilkes. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And, and we, sister. We, welcome, guys, and sister. Thank you for the <laughs> I'm just teasing. Okay. <laughs> Sister's not here to see, she's at the convent again, um, and she's not here to see that the, the lay dudes are not only in vests today, but matching brown vests. That <laughs> is true. We don't have your hologram wow. up, sister, so we, we neglected to mention your additional title. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so picking up where we left off uh, from, from last week, uh, you know, we talked about a lot, as usual. A couple of themes that uh, I'll just kind of summarize. One was the theme of community, family, communion in the context of Christmas. So that was, came out of Carlos's reflections. I think that was an interesting discussion, uh, interesting perspective on the Holy Family um, on, on Christmas Day and then the season that we're celebrating. I'd like to go back to where we left off, which is page 110, and just revisit that as we launch into this week. It's fitting. We keep celebrating Christmas, so turn right back to Christmas. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully. There, uh, at the bottom of that page, 110, Newman writes, It is good to be joyful. It is wrong to be otherwise. For one day we we may put off the burden of our polluted consciences and rejoice in the perfections of our Savior, Jesus Christ, without thinking of ourselves, without thinking of our own miserable uncleanness, but contemplating his glory, his righteousness, his purity, his majesty, his overflowing love. I hope everybody had a great Christmas day. I hope everybody's having a great octave of Christmas. I really do hope that everybody's embracing this, you know, powerful statement from Newman uh, and, you know, letting that kind of soak in a little bit and just just contemplating the beauty of our Savior for who he is, for what he's done. And lots more that we have to reflect on in terms of what that means. But uh, again, I hope that was a a fruitful kind of uh, spiritual prompting by Newman for everybody. As for this week in the octave of Christmas, sister, what struck you this week? Well, as I was just telling you guys before we hit the record button, it seems a little ironic, but I was really struck by the theme of suffering. This Way to week. go, sister. Way to pick up <laughs> on, that, on that theme of contemplating his joy and going right for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but I think, you know, it might be because I have a Franciscan heart um, and I'm naturally drawn to meditating on Christ crucified. But I can remember back before I even entered the convent, I was always struck by that during the season of Advent and Christmas that sense of remembering, but this is awesome, but don't forget like why he came. Mm. Sister, since since you you mentioned it, not to get you completely off track, but I I suspect it's relevant. For those who aren't aware of St. Francis's kind of profound conversion and his contemplation of Christ crucified, maybe a few words on that. Ah, yes. Well, let's see. Let me give a really short version here because I know we're on the clock, right? Um, St. Francis had a heart for chivalry and war and fighting, and he came back from war sick and and disappointed, 
got locked in his father's basement, escaped, and then spent some time feeling depressed in a cave by himself and had this just this profound profound conversion where all those desires in him he realized were really to draw him to Christ and purified in a way that he could um, use them to help others get closer to Christ. And he also, at one point in his conversion, spent some time at, um, meditating on a crucifix and heard Christ speaking to him from the crucifix, go rebuild my church. And I think most of us probably know he physically went and started rebuilding churches. People would say, well, that's actually not what Jesus was calling him to. Um, but it wasn't the end goal necessarily. He wanted him to rebuild the church in a different way, but it was an important part of his conversion and his learning and growing process. And um, so from that short version of the story, we we Franciscans um, learn from Francis just the profound value of meditating on Christ on the cross. And in fact, in my own vocation story, meditating on the cross of San Damiano, where Francis had that experience of Christ speaking to him is what really helped me. You really are. To my heart. You really are a Franciscan, aren't you? Yeah, it really showed me that that's when I knew that I was called to the hmm. Sisters of St. Francis the Martyr St. George. And, and that's something we just talk about a lot. And especially in our particular community, our particular charism, we talk a lot about um, looking on him whom we have pierced. And from there, we, we gain the, the love and the, and the mercy that we need to share Christ's merciful love with others. Well, so tell us more about how that struck you and Newman for this week. Yes. So I think, you know, in the beginning, the beginning of the week, there's a lot of scrolling through my notes here. There's just a lot of, you know, friendship with Christ and becoming like little children. And then towards uh, actually the last day um, that we're talking about here on January 2nd, the Feast of Saints, Basil and Gregory or Basil and Gregory depending on who you ask on the tomato, tomato. I was, yeah, exactly. Basil, but I was <laughs> tomato and basil. <laughs> See what you did. Uh, it's yeah, salad it a, almost. It took a minute and then I got nervous. Hmm. Anyway, the, the title of this reflection is warfare, the condition of victory. And I was just like, Oh, this one's going to be a doozy. Yeah. Christmas Christmas octave is over. Here we go. Mm. <laughs> First day of not technically officially Christmas. Still a Christmas season, but we're talking about warfare as a condition of victory and just meditating. Enough of this sitting around meditating on, you know, the joyful beauty of the Christ child. Let's go to battle. Yeah, and it's just I was like even just I just meditated so long on just that that title and um I just thought, yeah, that is why Jesus came. And I think just in this whole reflection here, um, Newman talks about like, this is my own words, you know, reiterating what he said, but all of life has its ups and downs. External peace is a gift to which we have no right. It's just, it's a gift when we receive it. Um, but trials and sorrows are really what's more to be expected in this life. And that um, suffering is really the path to true peace. And this life is just a pilgrimage to what we're really longing for and then just the idea that like we're not special in our suffering we're not uniquely not helped by god or anything that all christians all generations before us and even christ himself have walked the path of suffering to gain heaven and true union with god in the end and then 
I think what really struck me is I was talking a little bit before about before I entered the comment, I um, already was struck by meditating on Christ's suffering in this season. And they reference here on the at the end of the first paragraph on page 141. Um, I'm just going to read the last. Well, I was going to say a couple sentences. It's just one long sentence. They have seen again and again in numberless instances that suffering is a path to peace, that they who sow in tears shall reap in joy, and that what was true of Christ is fulfilled in a measure in his followers. And so suffering is a path to peace, but we're going to cry now. But this crying is what itself, this suffering is going to bring us to joy, and, um, and we're becoming more like Christ. I want to pick up on yeah. something right in the middle of this page, sister, that I think will kind of amplify your point. And it, and it struck me in, in reading it as kind of a brilliant reframe by Newman, kind of getting us outside of ourselves and seeing mm-hmm. ourselves through a very different lens. And he, he does that, I think, this week in a couple of ways, and this is one of them. In the, in the top paragraph, he writes, The heavenly hosts who see what is going on upon earth well understand even from having seen it often, what is the course of a soul traveling from hell to heaven? So that sentence right there, first of all, it's like, okay, the apparent novelty, the apparent gravity of whatever it is that we're going through really is not so novel or grave when you think about mm-hmm. it from the perspective of eternity. And just mm-hmm. this idea, and you know, I don't know, for me, this is not something I contemplated before. Imagine how the angels view us as we're going through what we go through. <laughs> and what do they see? They see the course of a soul traveling from heaven, to, from hell to heaven. I don't mm-hmm. know. That's, that's powerful, right? So, the sister, what you described, viewed through the eyes of the angels who look down upon us, I think is powerful. Mm-hmm. They have seen again and again in numberless instances that suffering is the path to peace, that they who sow in tears shall reap in joy, and that what was true of Christ is fulfilled in a measure of his followers. So shifting the lens, you know, a couple of things happen there. We, you know, what you described, sister, is kind of the process of becoming. It's the, this, it's the path to peace. We need to go through this to get somewhere. When we view it through the eyes of the angels, they've already seen it happen. It's, you know, it's that sense of kind of the, the, the journey's uncertain, to, but the outcome is is guaranteed to the extent that you're, mm-hmm. you remain on this path. So, I don't know. That's powerful. I think it's yeah. helpful too. Oftentimes, we think of the scenes of Christmas in a very tender and kind of happy, and you know, there's stars and angels and probably Christmas cookies <laughs> or something around. And yet, if we actually dig into and the beautiful, well crafted wooden mangers, right? Yes, right. yes, of course. Nice uh, little house for uh huh, uh huh, with family. like straw down <laughs> and like some nice little sheep standing uh-huh. nearby. And uh, then you actually, you know, I don't know. Imagine yourself sitting out overnight while you know Mary's having the baby Jesus, and the stinky shepherds are showing up with their smelly and and just like uh, sheep are not cute not nearly as cute as pictures father dominic would know this so for for those who are aren't aware uh, (laughs) father dominic's parents actually keep a small little flock of yes they do so he's he's speaking from firsthand experience yes indeed indeed and i will also add that you know growing up working on a farm i did muck a stall in the spring where the sheep had been for the winter yeah it's not 
bucolic. It's not a pretty sight. It really isn't. And there's so much of the Christmas scenes that are not. I mean, they don't have a place to stay. It's miserable outside. The city is packed. They're rejected. They're outside of town someplace in a in a stable. This is not an iconic, beautiful, comfortable scene. Um, I heard it said, I think Fulton Sheen, Venerable Fulton Sheen, coined the phrase that the shadow of the cross lies over the, the crash or the crib. Um, and that already here, we can see the, the suffering to come and that Christ has taken that upon himself already. And Newman is, is simply calling us to resign ourselves to that fact too. Father, what struck you this week? So actually, I'm going to flip back towards the beginning of our time, December 28th, speaking about the holy innocence. This is page 120, 121, right in there. And it, it continues that same reflection um, that you started, sister. He begins his kind of reflection speaking about how at this moment in the celebration of Christmas, the church places before us uh, this scene of the slaughter of these innocent children in Bethlehem. And he says it's, it's to sober our wishes and hopes of this world, our high, our high ambitious thoughts and our, or our anxious fears, jealousies, and cares. Then he continues, By the picture of the purity, peace, and contentment, which are the characteristics of little children, he combines the two kind of scenes into one. We have this horrible depiction of Herod's slaughter of the, the young boys in Bethlehem, but he also fast-forwards us into our Lord's words about being childlike, you know, having a child's heart. And he takes this opportunity to speak on what are the characteristics of a child's heart. And he, and he ties it in, I think, as well with that journey from hell to heaven. Because he says on the next page that though a child, before, certainly you know, before their baptism, there's a, a seed of evil already in there. And we, we don't really see it in a tiny child, but it's there. And it's the task of the grace of, uh, that, that Christ gives through his church, through his sacraments, um, to gradually, certainly starting with baptism, but gradually throughout their whole life, uh, to dig that, you know, tendency towards evil, that concupiscence that remains out of our hearts. And it's, and yet, he can look back to children and say, but there's something about a child and childlikeness that points us towards what is the qualities that we're going to have in heaven. He has a beautiful line um, on page 121. The simplicity of a child's ways and notions his ready belief of everything he is told, his artless love, his frank confidence, his confession of helplessness, his ignorance of evil, his inability to conceal his thoughts, his contentment, his prompt forgetfulness of trouble, his admiring without coveting, and above all, his reverential spirit, looking at all things about him as wonderful, as tokens and types of the one invisible, are all evidence of his being lately, as it were, a visitant in a higher state of things. I mentioned earlier that I noticed a couple of brilliant reframes this week. This was the other one. Yeah. That causing us to look at ourselves through the lens of who we once were. Yeah. So when we look at children, we see to some extent what we used to be. And he does say somewhere, I don't remember exactly where in this week he says it or writes it. He writes that we shouldn't be, shouldn't romanticize that or sort yeah. of become We're not trying to get back there, this. so yeah, to speak. Yeah, we're not trying to go backwards, but... But that there's something there, and, and I want to pick up on what you were just reading and add this from page 117, going back a little bit. At the bottom of page 117, young people indeed readily love each other, for they are cheerful and innocent, more easily yield to each other, and are full of hope. They are types, as Christ says, of his true converts. There's, 
you know, there's an innocence. And elsewhere he writes about kind of the distractedness of adulthood, you know, our ambitions, our desires for the world, our, you know, the, the busyness, the things that get in the way. And one of the things that just struck me in reading these passages in the reframe is the idea of friendship and how friendship, and there's actually been, you know, secular, psychological, sociological studies about the epidemic, as it's been called, of loneliness in American culture. We don't have time for friendship. Kids, although we're doing it to them mm. uh, in some cases, kids don't naturally have that problem. Yeah. They kind of naturally just make friends. You know, yeah. it's that, that has, you know, always hysterical, charming scene of a kid just walks up onto a playground, doesn't know anybody, and says, hi, I'm Andrew. Want to be my friend? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing that, that kids do. That, I don't know, in a very concrete way sort of struck me as uh, what he's after and what you were reading. Yeah, that characteristic of, like, not having your guard up, mm. but being willing to just, you know, kind of put yourself out yeah, there. Yeah, not to give yourself, yourself. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You're not concerned about how you appear or what, what other people think about you. Uh, Carlos, what struck you? Well, it's a combination of everything uh, referencing same things you were talking about, Mike, at the page, bottom of page 117, this um, uh, not in a sense in uh, like a, a vacuous sense, but in this purity that you were describing uh, in combination with page 112, the holy innocence, this uh, first paragraph, full paragraph on that page 122, the distinctness with which the conscience of a child tells him the difference between right and wrong should also be mentioned. As persons advance in life and yield to the temptations which come upon them, they lose this original endowment and are obliged to grope about in many cases because they have lost, through sinning, a guide which they originally had from God. And then further on he goes to describe uh, this chief beauty of the mind in a child uh, instantly disappears as soon as they try to like enact, he doesn't say they enact the will, but um, this, this struggle that Sister was referencing, uh, suffering, it's uh, we're prone to like nostalgically look back at childhood when mm. there was le- a type of less suffering. Mm. I think I mean if anybody, maybe less burden. Yeah, as I hear you describe it now, I was kind of wrestling with how to make that distinction, and it maybe burden is the word. Yeah, that is better because there's a unique unique type of suffering because I think um, a child being so necessarily receptive in the midst of a fallen world means that there will be woundedness. This was a big, you know, anticipation of the phrase epiphany uh, for our 10-year anniversary. We went on a retreat, and I realized that my whole paradigm of parenting, but of Christianity in general, was like, don't cause any difficulties Hmm. for God, Mm -hmm. and then you'll be a good Christian. And then that influenced my parenting of, like, my task is... To pre- it's like a pharisaical, like preventing mm-hmm. of any um, baggage for my kids, which is impossible. Yep. Um, so let me say what you just said in a different yeah. way to tie it to what Sister was reflecting on. To, pre- to protect them from any burden or any form of suffering. Yep. That's your job, right? <laughs> your job is to just kind of put them in a bubble and kind of keep them safe. Well, yeah, uh, but like drilling down further, like the nuance of it, of not that the, it's not, it wasn't even so much from like the world's polluting influence, but mm. like the, knowing that 
within them themselves. I didn't have the articulate uh, notions that you know uh, we're getting in these pages here, but uh, just my own experience of my own fallenness. Like I was raised without a TV, but <laughs> I got into plenty of sin, you know. Mm-hmm. So knowing just this seed, uh, I think it, you were referencing the father of um, this this concupiscent seed. I know that it's in me. I know it's in my kids. Uh, and but like, you know, the task is to journey through life and to bring it all in intimacy to the Lord, um, so that the the wheat and the tares get harvested and mm-hmm. sifted. Um, well, and maybe maybe to um, use a metaphor, I think Carlos, for what you're saying, that seed is. Let's speak literally here. Mm-hmm. There, that seed of concupiscence is in there, and when I what I hear you describing is an attempt to try to prevent its germination. Yeah, right. To yeah. to sort of stifle that seed and keep it buried and prevent it from germinating. Maybe you know, theologically. I'd, Probably need to think this through before I say it, but it's sort of <laughs> no. It's just ger- say it. We'll see what happens. It's, it's German. Yeah, Father can clean it up. Um, we'll tell you it's, if you're a heretic. It's germination is you know is going to happen. You know, as a result of the fall, and it needs to come to the light to be healed. Yeah, right. Was, so, so maybe that's a way of thinking through what you were describing. Is you need to accompany them through that process of the germination and then the the purification of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that seems exactly yeah, well, what our Lord references in that parable. Of like, boy, that no, makes a whole lot more sense out of the parenting I've been trying uh, to do. You know, <laughs> but Jesus says, like, leave the, the leave the the tares and the wheat in the mm-hmm. field, and come harvest will be when it's determined which is which. But for now, it's not on you to uh, figure that out, but to rather, yeah, uh, do your job of uh, caring for the fruit, caring for the grain. You know, continuing to foster what is good and holy. And I think, in particular, mm-hmm. like so, like this concupiscent fleshy uh, detours that that are part of my journey is like uh, in the pair the chapter sister was referencing um, there's the Matthew Broderick uh, rendition of is it Henry V you know mm. like St. Crispin's day speech of mm. Shakespeare you know what I'm talking about no Okay. All right. All right. Uh, well, anyway, I'll maybe try to send you that link. <laughs> we can attach it to the comments. But uh, there's like this arousing. Uh, I gotta find it here. What what chapter were you doing, sister? January second, I think. It was January second. Okay. So one forty. Yeah, one forty. Um, okay. So no ish about it. Yeah, one forty two. It's the bottom of the first paragraph there. Yeah. Acquit yourselves like men in your day, and when it is over, Christ will receive you to himself, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man shall take from you. So it's uh, the Shakespeare line is, uh, you know, men will hold, you know, those who aren't with us on this field of battle will hold their manhood cheap because hmm. they weren't with us in yes. this battle. Yes, And so it's like, particularly in raising my boys, like, I have to get this right and journey with them. It's like, okay, we're finding this brokenness, this fallenness, this temptation to go away from the Lord. But it's like, we're going to go through this together. Um, Into that battle. Yeah, Yeah. that's Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. our task. I'm with you. The Lord is with us. He's already conquered this. But we do have to engage in this battle. We cannot circumvent Mm -hmm. it. That's beautiful. I I actually think that paragraph that you just highlighted is a... a, um, fitting place for us to to wrap this one up. Uh, in, in light of all that we've talked about, um, Newman writes at the top of that page, now it is our turn 
and all ministering spirits keep silence and look on. O let not your foot slip, or your eye be false, or your ear be dull, or your attention flagging. Be not dispirited, be not afraid. Keep a good heart, be bold, do not draw back. You will be carried through. Amen. Kind of sums it up. (laughs) On that, Father, would you like to close us in prayer? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the gift of John Henry Newman's Reflections this week and the chance to open our hearts to your word and to the gift of grace that you give each of us to carry us through the day, carry us through the battle, carry us through our sufferings. We ask that in all those things we might be united with Christ who we continue to celebrate as our newborn Redeemer and King. We ask that we might stay close to him in his crib and his cross. The Lord be with you. And with with your your spirit. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 St. John Henry Newman. Pray Pray for us. Pray for us. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again. We will be back next week for the week of Epiphany. We'll talk then.